everyday, ordinary people living extraordinary lives. For the next few minutes, join me as I introduce you to some of them. And so what happened is we got off of this notion of communal well-being and we really began to focus more on the individual. I'm B. Moore, and welcome to Conversations. Recently, I was approached by a local faith-based organization to become a member of their board. Fortunately for me, part of my decision-making process included a discussion with my next guest, who spent a couple of days in Syracuse to share his vast knowledge with local representatives. Hi, I'm Bishop Dwayne Royster. I am the National Political Director and Mid-Atlantic Regional Director for Faith in Action, the nation's largest faith-based organizing movement. We have 45 different federations and local and state uh, construction, as well as doing work in three countries outside the U.S., where people of faith who believe deeply in the work of societal transformation through social justice by advocating and fighting for policies that will help those that have been uh, the least impacted in society be able to find wholeness and be able to thrive to the best of their ability. Bishop Royster, I just want to thank you for being my guest on Conversations with B. Moore. I want to start out, though, by talking about your beginnings in terms of uh, you grew up in Philadelphia, correct? That's correct, yes. Okay, okay. Tell me about some of the conditions that you experienced uh, as you were growing up in, in the city of Philadelphia. Sure. So um, in 1970, and I'll be dating myself in this, I was born in Germantown, section of Philadelphia, um, uh, actually in a historic area. Uh, As a matter of fact, the house, the apartment complex my parents lived in was right across the street from Cliveden, where George Washington fought the Battle of Germantown during the Revolutionary War. Um, Interestingly enough, the Americans lost that fight to the British, uh, but eventually would go on to win the war. Um, shortly after I was born, when I was about one year old, uh, my parents moved to the East Mount Airy section of Philadelphia, uh, which was just a couple of miles from where we were living at the time. Uh, but it was primarily a white neighborhood, uh, and we were one of the first black families to break the block. Uh, my parents bought their home from a Jewish physician. And it was a neighborhood that was deeply in transition in that time, a lot of white flight going on. Um, There was an organization that had been started some years prior to that called East Mount Airy Neighbors, uh, which was an organization dedicated to trying to keep the Mount Airy section of Philadelphia an inclusive community where it was both black and white. Some years later, after I was about five or six years old, my mother took on the job of being uh, the executive secretary, what we would now call an executive director of that organization and helped to lead it for several years. Uh, doing organizing work. So my first introduction to community organizing was actually at the feet of my mother, uh, who would take my sister brother and I to all of her meetings, set up a table, have food for us, and we would do activities and play games and do homework or whatever as we got older. So I grew up in a neighborhood that was greatly transitioning. Um, Eventually, the section of Mount Airy that I lived in eventually became all black, but West Mount Airy continued to this date to maintain uh, really integrated uh, presence. Uh, 70s was a very interesting time in Philadelphia. Um, Philadelphia's population was probably at its highest. There was about 2 million people living there in the city at the time. Um, it had a burgeoning black population, but also had deep levels of poverty simultaneously. 
Uh, and it was a struggle uh, for some folks, some family members that were living there in sections of West Philly and North Philly, uh, sections of Southwest Philly, where they were struggling uh, very deeply. But for the most part, you know, where I grew up and, and lived, um, it was a place where the black folk that were sort of up and coming, folk that were actually taking advantage of uh, affirmative action laws that were coming into place, African Americans who would have previously been locked out of uh, management positions were actually getting into them, my dad being one of them, uh, that, you know, now we're kind of being able to move uh, up the economic ladder to some extent. And although we were moving up the economic ladder, we were still facing a lot of challenges virtue by virtue of race um, in the communities that we found ourselves. So for, for me, during the time that I was growing up in Philadelphia, it was a place of opportunity and growth. Uh, when I got into my adulthood and I spent uh, with the exception of being in college, I've spent uh, 47 of my years of my life in Philadelphia and just moved down to the Washington, D.C. area a couple of years ago. So um, I've watched Philadelphia go through a lot of changes, a lot of challenges, um, and some real painful experiences, um, as in some sense, um, Philadelphia became the poorest big city in America um, and not really sure how to get itself out of that situation. So... Having this this background and experience in terms of, you know, just being exposed at an early age to the organizing, eventually sure. eventually you you took on the mantle of becoming a minister. And I wanted yeah. you to tell me a little bit about that call and how it was maybe influenced by the organizing piece and maybe how conversely your ministry influenced uh, the organizing that you were were already doing. Sure. So it's actually a very interesting story. Uh, my faith background as I was growing up was very um, complex, uh, to say the least. Uh, my parents, who both loved the Lord but hated the church, uh, thought the church was full of hypocrites and didn't want to have any parts of it, uh, you know, were very instrumental in helping us to understand faith at an early age. Um, I think for me, I've, I've always been exploring um, and have studied with uh, just about everybody as a child. We studied with Jehovah's Witnesses. We went to the Unitarian Universalist Church that was around the corner. After my grandmother guilted my mother into taking us to church, uh, we uh, was a part of the United Methodist Church. Uh, my grandmother belonged, my paternal grandmother belonged to Zion Baptist Church in Philadelphia, where Leon Sullivan was pastor. And that, that, I'll get back to that. That was actually a critical part of my development of faith. You know, I studied, uh, I was a part of the United Methodist Church. I, I was uh, hooked up with the Nation of Islam when I was in college in Boston, um, Mass Ave Baptist Church in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and it eventually wound up at Eastwick United Methodist Church in Philadelphia, where my uncle uh, was one of the lay ministers in the congregation, and that's really where my faith really began to develop in a deeper way. But as a child, um, coming from a background of a mom that was a community organizer, uh, well, my grandmother used to take us to Zion Baptist Church in Philadelphia, and Leon Sullivan, who was the first black board member of General Motors, founder of Opportunities Industrialization Center, which was a black uh, self-reliant, self-help workforce development program and, and social justice organization. When I used to go to Zion Church, and there was a mega church at the time in Philadelphia, several thousand people were members there uh, when he was pastor. Um, you know, he preached messages that weren't just about the sweet by and by, or if you pray, everything's going to be all right. Uh, Dr. Sullivan was um, an activist and organizer in every sense of the word. He organized the big boycott against the Tasty Cake Corporation, which was a big 
corporation here in Philadelphia. Got 400 congregations to boycott their products. He actually opened the first black strip mall um, in America, in Philadelphia, um, in the uh, 70s. All of this, um, you know, using the power of faith to begin to organize. So when I when I went to church and listened to him preach, it was about power and it was about owning our destiny and it was about having a say in our community and owning our politics. And so I think I was greatly influenced by that, uh, by by his presence at Zion, and then my mother's uh, work as a community organizer, so that the models for ministry for me were King and Abernathy and uh, were the Leon Sullivans of the world. So in my mind, later on in life, when I was in college, I was a student at Boston College in Boston, Massachusetts, uh, sophomore year, when I answered my call to ministry, I was a political science major. I wanted to go into politics, but the only thing I really saw the church good for was getting votes. Um, and God called me uh, in my sophomore year. Uh, my image in my mind of being a minister was never about baptisms and communion and, um, you know, having good prayer meetings. The, the, in my mind, ministry was about helping people understand their God-given power to have a say in their destiny. Um, and so that was really what was driving me. So after uh, years later, when I was at my uncle's church at Eastwick United Methodist Church, I answered my call to ministry. I began the process of uh, finishing up my undergraduate degree and then getting uh, going to seminary. The thing that was driving me and what I really felt called to do uh, was to really be um, a prophetic voice. And if I, if I, the, the scripture that actually was the text that I read uh, when I was a sophomore in college, and I was taking a class at the time at Boston College, it's a Jesuit school, and every student there has to take um, has to take religion classes. And so I was doing an Old Testament class at the time, and I happened to be in the book of Jeremiah. Um, and I was reading Jeremiah, the first chapter, um, beginning at the 10th verse, and it was really the call story of Jeremiah. Mm-hmm. And when I finished reading the text and I put it down, because um, I was actually having to work on paper for that class at the time, um, I heard a voice saying to me, that is what I want you to do. And um, it was a very powerful, uh, very powerful moment for me. I went calling my mother, I'm crying and so on. I said, I think I know what I'm supposed to do with my life. Uh, and my mother laughed at me and said, no, you're not. <laughs> uh, she's, you know, uh, because again, here's a, you know, a person who loves the Lord, hates the church. Um, and uh, it's really just like, you know, you can be a good person, be a good father, be a good, you know, businessman, leader, uh, but you don't have to become a minister. And I'm like, no, I have to do that. I actually wound up leaving college over that um, and doing that. It's just, let me just read this one part of this section. It says in Jeremiah 1, uh, 9 through uh, 10, it says, The Lord reached out his hand, touched my mouth, and said to me, Now I put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. And that's what I've understood my ministry to be um, uh, these uh, 27 years now that I, uh, going into 27 years, that I've been doing pastoral ministry and prophetic ministry um, in the community. And prophetic, when I say prophetic, in the the tradition of the Hebrew prophets, not soothsaying and things of that nature, but more in the sense of the Hebrew prophets. Um, And doing that work to really uh, call the world back to order, uh, to help organize and strengthen people to be able to see the humanity of all, that we're all created in the image and likeness of God, and that have a God-given right to be able to thrive uh, wherever we find ourselves. Certainly. Now, that's a powerful testimony of uh, 
just coming into oneself and, and um, basically into one's destiny. So that's wonderful. I appreciate you sharing yeah. that. Um, Thank you. Absolutely. How did you become involved with PICO, though, or Faith in Action? Sure. So uh, actually in the late 90s, I was um, involved. I started a church in Philadelphia called Way of Life Ministries, um, and we had some activity going on uh, around our community that was just not healthy. Um, and needed a vehicle, was trying to find a vehicle to be able to help um, address these issues. And at the time, there was an organization called Philadelphia Interfaith Action that was affiliated with the uh, Industrial Areas Foundation um, and got involved. And that was my first experience in faith-based community organizing. Um, I hung out with them for about a year, year and a half. I did some work. There was actually a mass murder right around the corner from the congregation I was serving at the time where nine people were shot and killed in a, an abandoned house and they were killed in a gang style. Mm. Um, and we did organizing around that particular event, calling the city to do something around um, addressing the, the 25,000 abandoned homes that were all across the city of Philadelphia. Sure. Um, and what got involved uh, with uh, Philadelphia Interfaith Action, got involved with the Industrial Areas Foundation, um, did that work for a while, then kind of pulled away from it, um, went through some uh, transition. Some years later, um, actually had uh, founded another church called Way of Life Ministries, and uh, the Pico National Network um, was trying to develop an organization in Philadelphia. Uh, both the Industrial Areas Foundation and a peak, previous Pico Federation had both died. Um, in the city, and so there was no faith-based organizing going on. Mm. Uh, so a young man by the name of Wes Lathrop kept reaching out to me and uh, trying to talk to me about it, and I'm like, nah, I think I'm done, I think I'm done, I'm not going to do this anymore. And um, he wouldn't. He was relentless, and he wouldn't give up. And uh, one of the first things that uh, he said whenever I met with him, I said to him, I said, you need a black organizer. Mm. And he said, why, why do you say that? I said, because, you know, I appreciate you, Brad, but, you know, there's a there's some context of the African-American community that I'm not sure you understand, and uh, you need to, uh, you need a black organizer. Um, and what actually became funny about that was, like, we didn't talk for a year. Uh, and then he came back to me after some people were talking to him and some people were talking to me and saying, the two of you got to get back together and have a conversation. And so I said to him again, I said, you need a black organizer. And... Um, you know, he said, well, I tried to find one. I couldn't find anybody, which I always find amusing. And I said, fine, I'll do it. <laughs> and, uh, I wound up being a part-time organizer, helped get uh, the organization Power, which is Philadelphia's organized to witness and power and rebuild off the ground. And then um, they asked me to be their first executive director. So I did that. And that was uh, 2010, 2011. Uh, that we were doing that work, and uh, the founding convention for Power was September 25th, 2011. I spent five years as the executive director of Power, and then after those five years, I left Power and came down to Washington, D.C. to serve as the national political director for Faith in Action, because in the midst of everything else that I was doing, I actually served as a councilman in Norristown, Pennsylvania for some time and was active in politics. So... Um, you know, it was kind of a natural progression for me to kind of move down to D.C. and to begin doing this work at a very different level. I see. Tell me about some of the, the work, specific work, that you were doing with Faith in Action and some of the accomplishments that you were able to, to, to obtain through that work. Yeah, let me start with power because I want to start with the local work because I think that that is actually anything that we even do at the national level is always built off of what's happening at the local community. 
So Power, um, when I was in Philadelphia, when we launched, we had our first campaign that was focused on uh, jobs. It was at the height of the the recession that we were in, uh, quote-unquote recession, it's really depression. And we spent a lot of time trying to help folk, um, you know, figure out how to help our community, which, again, the city of Philadelphia was the poorest big city in America, uh, get back on track in its economic footing. And we saw an opportunity at the Philadelphia airport where the federal government was going to invest over a billion dollars, about $6 billion, actually, to re- help redo our airport. And we saw jobs, uh, both permanent jobs, service sector jobs, as well as construction jobs coming to that. And we were deeply concerned that the people who were most deeply affected uh, in terms of the economic crisis in Philadelphia would not see any economic benefit from uh, the airport and the project and the jobs that would be created. Um, so we started looking at that. It was going to be 45,000 construction jobs, 3,000 permanent jobs. And so we started organizing. We started meeting with uh, folks from all of We met with the FAA. We met with the Department of Labor. We went down to D.C. to do that. We met with the mayor and the head of Citizens Bank and people that were going to fund this. We were meeting with different agencies. Uh, and we finally came to the conclusion that um, – the real impact here was going to be with the service sector jobs, which tended to be more people of color. Uh, and oftentimes they were in jobs that were paying less than minimum wage because they because they were tip jobs. And we have a lower tip wage in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. But they were not allowed to ask for tips. And so literally you have people that were working full time that were making only $200 a week. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we jumped into a campaign. We helped to organize two labor unions to partner with us. Um, SEIU 32BJ and Unite Here Local 274. Um, and we began a campaign to really get the wages up, to get people from making, um, you know, below minimum wage and minimum wage. Uh, in over four years, we fought and uh, we, we went up taking issues to the, the ballot in Philadelphia because the Philadelphia airport's wholly owned by the city of Philadelphia. And Philadelphia had a law that said that any contractor or subcontractor for the city of Philadelphia had to pay their employees at least a minimum of uh, 150% of the minimum wage plus benefits. And when we found out that the airport wasn't doing that, we actually took it to the mayor, we took it to city council, um, and we had to make some changes to the law to make sure that all the subcontractors were covered as well. But in the midst of this fight, which was originally just about the Philadelphia airport, Uh, we discovered that we actually, to do it, we had to impact every contractor and subcontractor with the city of Philadelphia, which would mean 10 to 20,000 workers were going to be involved in this. And so uh, we fought. uh, We got the wage all the way up to $12 an hour uh, while I was there, plus benefits uh, for those that were working on not only city contracts, city subcontracts, but anybody that rented property from the city of Philadelphia. So if you were on city of Philadelphia property, you had to pay your employees at least $12 an hour plus benefits. Uh, and then most recently, my successor uh, to my work at Power just got that raise to $15 an hour. So we we measured the economic impact of that of about $10 million plus dollars per year. Um, and just from the airport, we were able to mark out the uh, zip codes about where the employees lived. Mm-hmm. And we knew that this additional money was going into some of the poorest communities in Philadelphia and would have tremendous economic impact, where people who are making seven twenty five and below, because we follow the federal minimum wage, which is seven twenty five, people are now watching their wages be doubled. And we knew that it would have tremendous impact in their lives, their children's lives, their community lives, and it would be a great economic benefit to their neighborhood. 
And so we're very excited about that. Um, in addition to that, we did work on a statewide campaign to address uh, equity funding for school districts. Pennsylvania has 501 school districts. Uh, 50 of them are majority districts of color. And uh, through an analysis that was done by one of the members of power, we discovered that there is actually uh, districts of color get less, uh, $1,500 less per student per year from the state than majority white districts do. Uh, and which can amount to a school district like the city of Philadelphia, like hundreds of millions of dollars uh, being lost every year. Uh, smaller districts, you know, losing several million dollars uh, for classrooms that were desperately in need of support with new technology and new books and supplies and upgrading of buildings. Um, and so we entered into a campaign with a bunch of other organizations. Uh, we were one of the lead organizations on that campaign. Uh, to change the funding formula for the state of Pennsylvania fair uh, equity formula. We actually were able to get that um, and, it, and some increased money um, that began the process of shifting how funding was going to uh, school districts so that the districts, in particular districts of color, which tended to be poor districts, were actually getting an equitable share of the funding, not just an equal share of the funding. And we're actually beginning to able to invest in their schools and their students in ways they had not been for the previous decade. So very proud of that work. And then there were smaller things that we were doing as well, community benefits agreements around some corporations. We began work on doing climate justice and trying to help uh, create a solar uh, bank um, in Philadelphia where people with grow homes were able to put solar panels on their houses and be able to sell energy back to the city and create some uh, some, uh, you know, some power building that way, um, a variety of things, uh, some of which I can't even begin to think of off the top of my head. Then when I think about faith in action nationally, um, you know, we've been doing work around criminal justice reform, mass incarceration through our Live Free campaign led by Pastor Mike McBride, uh, which has also delved into the role uh, of uh, working to get progressive district attorneys elected around the country and sheriffs and the progressive sheriffs and progressive judges elected. Um, we are doing work around, uh, through our, a LARED campaign around supporting undocumented immigrants, doing protection work, legal help, uh, know your rights training. Um, a lot of these things also came up out of our experience in Ferguson. Many of us went to Ferguson shortly after Mike Brown was killed. Mm. We were on the ground there, got really, in some sense, radicalized. Uh, and came back with a vengeance to make sure that our communities were being protected. Um, and, and now recognize deeply that the crisis of mass incarceration and the crisis of deportation and detention are deeply connected to one another. In addition to that, we ran a moral economy campaign that's included issues around tax reform, around minimum wage, around paid sick time, around family leave, uh, around um, you know a variety of issues, taxes that we're looking at right now. Uh, that, you know, really is trying to bring about a moral economy and bring out equity in um, how, you know, economics and economic opportunity and wealth is distributed across the country. We fought for the Affordable Care Act nine years ago, Faith in Action, uh, when it was then known as the PICO National Network, uh, really cut its teeth on federal policy with helping to get SCHIP passed which was per, uh, a, a program designed to create health care, health insurance for children in states that they, their families made too much money for Medicaid but didn't have enough money to be able to provide for health care. So uh, we, we started working on that. And, I mean, there's so many other things that we work on on a daily basis. We do a lot of work around racial equity uh, and racial inclusion, a lot of work around economics, um, and really trying to help uh, 
folk in this country understand you can't separate race from economics. They're deeply tied together in this country. Interesting, interesting. And if you're just joining us, this is Conversations with B. Moore. I'm your host, and my guest for today is Bishop Dwayne Royster, and he's talking about the accomplishments that he has been able to do through his organization, Faith in Action, as well as Power, which is based in Philadelphia. Bishop, I want to go back to what you were saying in terms of some of the local accomplishments, because there was something I noticed in terms of the, the statistics and the number crunching and the analysis that goes into presenting your case. Can we talk a little bit about that, the number crunching and the analysis? Yeah, you know, it's actually funny. Um, so when we were working on a statewide equity campaign uh, early on, and there were some 35 organizations that were coming together. There were eight lead organizations of which Power was one of them. Um, there were state advocacy organizations, uh, state uh, re- you know education research organizations, state education law organizations, and so we came into the meeting and we uh, one of the first meetings and we said, hey, can anybody give us the data on how money is spent in the school districts based on race? And um, you know we were a community organizing group, right? We were not the researchers, we were not the data people, and so forth. And um, they said, nope, there's no way to figure it out. No way whatsoever to figure it out. Hmm. And we just kept saying, there's got to be a way to figure this out. And it just so happened that there was a, 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 a member of one of our congregations, uh, David Mozenkis is his name, from Germantown Jewish Center. And David is a, um, is a big data person. He works for uh, big pharmaceutical companies and places like that, crunching numbers. And so David said, I got this. Um, and so he went to the PA.gov website and went on to the state budget and downloaded the information on this, the, the Department of Education's budget allocations. And based on uh, using, I believe it's title, it's either Title One or Title Nine off the top of my head, and measuring that with the racial makeup of the school districts and the dollar allocation as well as the population of students was able to determine who was getting how much money and how much money they were getting per student. Now, what was funny was we went back to our allies with this information, and they said, that, can't, that possibly can't be right. Um, in particular, the education research organizations and the data organizations, they were like, oh, this can't be right. And we kept taking the two the meetings with us, and we were like, look, we've got this breakdown. We had all the graphs and the charts and everything laid out, and, and they just couldn't possibly believe that people of faith could, you know, come to this, come to the conclusion. Well, um, we actually had to wind up taking it to the state. We had a meeting with the governor's staff and the secretary of education. We took the information to them, and they got their people to look at it, and eventually they came back and said, wow, they're right. They figured this out. <laughs> and uh, it actually became a major piece. We actually had a showdown uh, with the state. There was a commission put together to study uh, education funding uh, that was run by a state senator and a state representative, both of whom were very conservative, um, and they did not want to let us in the meeting. So we basically told them uh, that if they were going around the state doing these hearings, we said, if you won't let us testify in Philadelphia, we're going to shut your meeting down. Uh, and we're going to bring people in there and just shut it down and shout you out, and you won't be able to have your meeting. And we're not only going to do it in Philadelphia, we'll travel across the state and do it to you. Well, they caved. Um, they let our uh, David Mazekas testify 
as well as let other parents testify about their experiences with the schools across the state. Um, as a result of it, his study uh, became uh, was covered by several national uh, publications. I think it was The Nation, uh, uh, Time, New York Times, uh, Washington, uh, Wall Street Journal, others were covering um, this pre- presentation that he did that was really showing the racial inequity that was happening in the state of Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. So um, it was at that moment that I began to realize controlling and owning your own research and data became incredibly important because other folk, if that's not on their agenda, they're not going to do it for you. So even at Faith in Action, we actually have our own data team here um, that runs our data and does uh, research for us, uh, even when we're looking at some of our political things. We have a team here led by uh, Risa Brown, uh, who is our national data and targeting manager, um, who uh, actually helps us uh, with all those things. You have to have your own research, your own background. I mean, certainly it's good to read other people's stuff, but you also need your own stuff too. Mm-hmm. But I think one of the beauties of the thing that it taught us at Power, and I think it continues to teach us in faith and action, is that often the answer to the questions that we're asking is often in the room with us. It's not that we actually ask to go out and get answers. Sometimes there's folk right there that can answer the questions for you. And I think that that's a, that's a really powerful gift. People of faith come from all walks of life, all experiences, all different uh, careers and, and um, you know, jobs. And sometimes we need to lean in uh, and, and see if there's an answer internal that can help us with our external campaigns and, and policy transformation that we're trying to work on. Certainly, certainly you want to take advantage of uh, whatever assets that you have present. Absolutely. So tell me a little bit about maybe some of the general obstacles that you encounter in in your faith-based organizing work. Sure. So I think, you know, one of the the obstacles that I've experienced is that I think since the civil rights movement, um, there was a moment in time, I think in the early 70s really, uh, where in particular the, the black church began to move into a different direction, right? And we began to see more prosperity, teaching, and preaching. Um, and it actually has impacted the white church as well. I shouldn't say that. It's really all churches. Um, and so what happened is we got off of this notion of communal well-being, and we really began to focus more on the individual. Mm. And so salvation was just about the individual. It wasn't about communal. It wasn't about community salvation. It wasn't about the transformation of community. Or It was all about the individual. And as long as I was good, as long as I did what I was supposed to do, as long as I paid my money, my tithes, my offerings, I... I sold into the ministry and sold into the man or woman of God. Then, and I got what I was supposed to get. Well, you know, forget everybody else. That's their problem. It's not mine. And I think we lost a lot of power and a lot of focus during that time. I think, you know, when we, we had the Voting Rights Act, we had the, the Civil Rights Act, when we moved into the 70s and began to see affirmative action, I think there was a way in which many folks thought they had arrived. And we've arrived at the pinnacle of the American dream and American identity. Um, not fully cognizant of the fact that there were forces on the other side that were working to rein back in uh, the freedom and the liberation that people were beginning to experience. Uh, they were going to do everything within their power to try to destroy that. And so when the time came that we finally began to realize that the water was boiling around us and we were stuck in the pot, um, we, were, we did not have the infrastructure nor the wherewithal, nor the really the theological understanding to begin to pivot quickly enough to begin to help our folk understand what was happening in that moment. We lost our prophetic voice and our prophetic edge. 
uh, prophecy became something very different in that time frame. If you think about the 80s and the 90s and the early 20th century, prophecy was about something very different, and it wasn't about the prophetic voices of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Amos um, and Zechariah and Zephaniah, but it became uh, more something that was very different than what we needed at that moment. Mm. And so, I mean, it's been a real struggle because I think that for a lot of folk who are deeply caught up in the individual thing, it's sort of like, well... Um, you know, as long as me and my people are okay, then we're okay. And I'm like, that's not good enough. Because uh, if, if you and your people are okay, there's still a community around them that's not okay. Uh, there are folk that are hurting every day. We can't watch the news and not see uh, the struggles that are happening with our undocumented siblings, the way folk of color are being treated in the economic justice system, the fact that poor white folk and middle-class white folk are being sold out for an agenda that really only impacts the top 1% of white folk and not everybody all the way around. And so it's like, how do we help people begin to make that shift? And then I'm often hearing a lot of times people talking about, oh, politics doesn't belong in the church. And I often want to ask the question, have you read the Bible? <laughs> have you read it? Have you have you really read it? I mean, because you know, uh, city and state and faith were all in the Hebrew Bible were all the same thing. They were never separated from each other. And even from the way I read the text and the way I've seen the story, you know, people I think want to super spiritualize a lot of what Jesus was talking about. But Jesus's message was really radical and it was revolutionary for that time even to the point that his ministry mostly was the people on the margins. It wasn't to the people in the center. You know, if God wanted him, to, uh, Jesus, to come into the world and be in the center, he could have been born into a rich family, into a very safe uh, situation, but instead he was born to a 14-year-old virgin uh, who was engaged to an older man in an arranged marriage who wound up having to take Jesus and Mary, Joseph had to take Jesus and Mary and make them undocumented immigrants into Egypt to protect them for those years because of the desire to assassinate little Hebrew boys uh, and in a conspiracy to do so. Many of the things that we're fighting with today are the very things that impacted, um, you know, the Holy Family, as, as some would define them, um, during that time frame. And yet we seem to ignore all that. We don't have uh, any imagination about what the possibilities of God could do if as people of faith we were actually unite and really see that all of us created the image and likeness of God and worthy of respect and dignity and treatment instead of seeing it through the lens of uh, a hierarchical ideology that says survival of the fittest. So oftentimes what we're proclaiming in our congregations is Darwinism instead of the biblical theology. And so it's like, how do we turn that around and begin to help our religious leaders and our key lay leaders begin to see that we have got to engage the world? Um, in a way that's not just about super spirituality, but it's about righting the wrongs and creating a just system uh, so that every person is able to thrive. So I see that as a daily challenge every day, that part of my job is not just organizing, but it's also being a political theologian and helping people understand how um, the texts that we read and traditions that we come from have deep political implications as well. You know, I, I had recently saw you doing an interview on CNN with... Tucker Carlson, I believe. And oh, that was Fox News. Yeah, that was, yeah. yeah. Oh, that was Fox. It yeah. was Fox News, sorry. And, he, and you were bringing up the issue of, of ethnic cleansing, I believe. And yeah. it yeah. just seemed like he really didn't understand what you were saying. <laughs> well, I, he didn't want to understand what I was saying is really what the problem was. And, you know, the challenge at the time was that this was during President Trump's presenting his first budget. 
Um, and the budget was really uh, designed to really wipe out social programs um, designed to uh, eradicate the Affordable Care Act. Um, it was doing everything it possibly could to hurt marginalized people in this country. But then the rhetoric around the um, around the, the desire to make the changes that he wanted to in the budget was really around undeserving people, and he was really using a lot of racial dog whistles to try to get people fired up about uh, what he wanted to do. And the intent was really uh, what I refer to as ethnic cleansing, right? It was like, we're going to wipe out uh, the undesirables of the world, and we're going to do it this way. Take away their health care, take away food stamps, take away any safety net program that will help them. We're going to go after Medicaid, Medicare. We're going to go after Social Security. We're going to go after Social Security disability. And he was basically taking every marginalized community um, in this country that suffers deeply and was trying to cut them out of, out of getting any services from the federal government. Um, and so I made this comment at a hearing, not at a hearing, at a press conference with congressional leaders uh, on the Capitol lawn, and I said that this, this budget really amounted to ethnic cleansing. Um, I think there were some people that took exception to that, uh, but when I was actually able to explain it in more detail to a lot of folks, it actually began to make a lot of sense, um, that what I was talking about was really an attack on certain classes and certain communities of people, which is really the object of ethnic cleansing is to wipe out people for certain faith or a certain ethnicity or a certain, um, a certain community. Um, and that was really what the plan was all along. I see. And I should have known that was Fox News <laughs> as opposed yeah, to seeing it. Was Fox. Oh, geez, yes. Yeah, I don't, yes, I, I, you know, I'm not, I don't know that I would have done that again. <laughs> right. Uh, the death threats and everything I got afterwards were pretty bad. So oh, it, wow. was, uh, it was a, yeah, I was like, yeah, I'm not sure I want to do Fox News anymore. Yeah, I, I don't blame you. <laughs> Talk about fake news. Uh, so. <laughs> wow. Well, you know, uh, recently you were here in Syracuse to visit an organization known as ACTS, Alliance of Communities Transforming Syracuse, which is actually uh, becoming a Faith in Action affiliate in the near Absolutely. future. So, you know, I wanted to ask you to tell me a little bit about some of your first impressions of Syracuse. And before you, before you go into that, it's very interesting sure. that you mentioned that Philadelphia was the, the poorest large city in America because I think at this point, you know, based on certain, um, certain statistics, that Syracuse is one of the poorest, if not the poorest, small city in America. There were a lot of parallels when I was in Syracuse as I was looking and listening to the experience in Philadelphia and uh, to the experience of uh, Syracuse. So even um, just talking about some of the educational equity issues that are going on, the criminal justice issues that are going on, you know, uh, just really even driving around looking, I'm like, it looks very similar to uh, to Philadelphia. So um, it was... It was uh, very interesting for me to, you know, to be there and be a part of that. Let me just say that I, I love Syracuse. I think it's a great town. Um, I think it has a lot of um, opportunity and um, a lot of potential. I think it's an issue of the imagination and the vision of folk. I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a former politician, as I mentioned earlier, and I think, um, I think you know, political race is a popularity contest. It doesn't mean you get the smartest people or the brightest people or the people with the most imagination to lead. Um, it just means that you are able to get enough people to vote for you so that you can get elected. And I think the challenge 
uh, within any place is that there's never one person that has the vision for where people or city or town or state or even a congregation have to go. It's actually a collective vision um, of people that pour into that place. And so I think the challenge is um, what is the plan and the vision for Syracuse? What is the hope for Syracuse? How does what does a whole a W H O L E a whole Syracuse look like? Um, and then who are the people that are going to help get it there? Um, and I believe Acts is going to be one of those organizations that's going to help it get there. Um, and they're going to help make sure that the people who are most marginalized, who have um, uh, you know whose whose voices they've often not heard, have not been heard in the places of power are heard, um, and that they're going to be able to help make the change that's necessary so that that city thrives, and not just for a certain segment of people, but for all the people that live there. So I, um, I appreciate it. I met with over 60 people in about a day and a half and really um, just enjoyed the conversation. I hope that I was able to share some things with folk that helped them to get some clarity and think differently about the work that they were doing. Um, but I also, most of my time was really spent listening deeply. Um, I wanted to hear the stories. I wanted to feel the pain. I wanted to experience what people were looking for in terms of hope um, and to recognize that within them uh, was the hope that was necessary for Syracuse to be uh, the city that everybody wants. Thank you for that. And, you know, with my final question, one of the things that I always wonder is for those who who kind of sit on the fray or sit on the sidelines and and you know maybe consider wanting to get involved or consider you know think about getting involved but don't get involved what would be your your message of encouragement towards them mm. I think my message to them would be um, imagine the world where you, your family, your loved ones, your friends are able to thrive. Now tell me what you're going to do to get there. How, do you, how are you going to work to make that happen? Um, we're not victims. Uh, we all have opportunities and choices to make. Um, and that your voice, your experience, your uh, journey has a lot to help us get to the place where we can all get to that place. We can all get to wholeness. We can all get to thriving. We can all get to a place of peace. And so we need your voice. Without you, we are, we, are, we are losing the gift of your presence, your intelligence, your wit, your understanding um, in a world that so desperately needs um, a cornucopia of voices and experiences to help it grow and thrive. So I'm hoping that uh, as folk might be listening to this and thinking about this and saying, oh, maybe this guy really isn't so crazy, um, that they're saying to themselves, yes, I want to get engaged. I want to have my voice heard. I want to. I want to lay out a vision for what Syracuse and what New York State and what this country could look like. I want to be an architect of a new Syracuse, and uh, and we want to find ways to help you support that and make that happen. So that you know, if you do feel that way and you're already there, then get connected with Acts because we can help you figure that out. Definitely, I think that's a great message to to convey, and uh, I hope that it gets shared with many here in the Syracuse region. Well, I, I hope so, and I'm going to work to the best of my ability to support the work of Acts and support the work of folk that are, are really trying to do some great good in, in uh, Syracuse and beyond. Thank you, thank you. Uh, my guest for today has been Bishop Dwayne Royster. He is the political director of Faith in Action 
And, and Dwayne, if, if there's any other information that people might want to have uh, regarding Faith in Action, how would they, they find out more if they wanted to? Sure, they can actually go to our website, which is faithinaction.org. That's faithinaction.org. Uh, you can go there and get information. Um, you can always email me personally uh, at dvoister, that's letter D R O Y S T E R, at faithinaction.org. I love to receive uh, emails and respond to folk and connect with them and get them connected. And of course, they can always check in with Axe as well um, and in Syracuse to, um, you know, find out more about what's happening on the ground locally. Uh, but if folk are listening in other places around the country, on our Faith in Action website, there are ways to get connected to the work and we can help you find out where you are locally. If you're looking for Syracuse, for Syracuse Acts, and Acts stands for Alliance of Communities Together Transforming Syracuse, it's uh, acts-syracuse.org. It's acts-syracuse.org. And there's staff and folk you can find on there, and you can reach them. You can also find me on Facebook um, at uh, facebook.com forward slash Dwayne.Royster. Um, and on Friday nights, I'm on my radio program at WRD Radio in Philly, and you can always call into that program. That's WRDRadio.com. And uh, you can feel free to engage me in conversation. Awesome, awesome. I'm going to have to check you out, brother, because <laughs> I, I look Please forward do. to do. that. Yes, definitely, definitely. Thank you so much for, for being my guest today. I really appreciate it. And I wish you just further success in the organizing that you're doing and and more so even than the organizing because I know that at the end of the day it's really about changing and making lives better so I wish you continued success in, in that endeavor oh, thank you very much and thank you for having me on your program I really appreciate it to find out more about ACTS and their parent organization Faith in Action and how you can become involved you can call the respective numbers given by Bishop Royster as for my decision about becoming a board member, I said yes. Conversations is a production of More About You. Join us next time.